0: Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Good morning. My name is Kim St. Angelo and I'll be reading the scripture for today. Um, we're going to be looking at a Matthew chapter 19. You'll find that on page 975. There's Bibles underneath the chairs. Feel free to follow along and uh, join me in uh, listening to God's instruction. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him and tested him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kim. You probably, like I have, been to a lot of weddings. And somewhere along the way, in almost any wedding, there are marriage vows that are taken. Where the man will say, I, Joe, just to choose a name, I, Joe, take you, Mary, to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Unfortunately, if statistics are anywhere close to being accurate, Joe and Mary may very well, after five, seven, eight, ten, fifteen, or twenty or more years, decide to call it quits. They will tell their friends that they married too young. They will tell the judge that they had irreconcilable differences. They'll explain to their little boy that it's not his fault, but mommy and daddy can't get along anymore, and it'll be better if daddy moves out. And so another family falls and crashes upon the rocks of divorce. Forty-five to fifty percent of all marriages end in divorce. But as many of you know firsthand, divorce doesn't really end anything. In fact, it usually only creates more problems. Financial, emotional, spiritual, social, even physical. Some of you think it could never happen to you. Some of you who are single think, oh, I'll never, ever even consider divorce. Those of you who are married and have been married a long time may think that you're beyond such a problem, but I want you to know this morning that not one marriage in this room is divorce proof. If you're married, but for God's grace, you'd be divorced today. If you've been divorced, I'm going to ask you this morning, don't run away from this topic. Don't let guilt or shame overwhelm you. It's important that we talk about this subject. We have a lot of youth in our church, a lot of kids, a lot of singles, a lot of married couples. It's important that this be a topic that we freely and without fear discuss. And even if your sin contributed to your divorce, those of you who have experienced it, let me remind you of what we sang earlier today. Jesus has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He washed us with his blood, and he presents our souls to God. So, grace is greater, friends. Grace is greater than your divorce. What I want to do this morning is bring in three things. We're on a series that we've been doing this summer called uh, Honest Answers for Honest Questions. And the question was submitted to me a couple of months back What does the Bible have to say about divorce? So we're going to tackle that one. And I want to do three things. First, I want to talk about God's design for marriage. We've got to start there if we're going to understand divorce. So first of all, God's design for marriage. Secondly, God's concession of divorce. And thirdly, I want to bring some words of application to the whole subject. So let's dive in. First of all, God's design for marriage. This passage that you heard Kim read is one of the foundational places in the whole Bible where jesus where god where the lord's teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage is presented to us it's very very important the setting is in verse three look at your bibles at verse three it says there in verse three that some pharisees came to and the word is test jesus in other words they were trying to trap jesus They were trying to back him into a corner. They were trying to get him to contradict the Mosaic law and make him look like a fool in front of this big crowd that had gathered. So they asked Jesus this question. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, you see, there were two schools of thought on that question back in Jesus's day. There was a conservative school of thought and a liberal school of thought. Just like today... You see conservatives and liberals lining up at these town meetings to ask Romney and Obama questions, hoping that they can ask him something that will make him look like a fool and you know swing the vote the other way. Just that same way, these Pharisees were lining up before Jesus because they knew that there were a right and a left on this matter of divorce. The question revolved around an Old Testament passage. And I'm putting this passage up here. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 24 the question the Pharisees ask is reflecting back on this passage. Let me read it for you. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from the house or if he dies... See how complicated this is? (laughs) Then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the key phrase in that passage concerning this discussion is the phrase something indecent. You see that in the third or fourth line there? Literally, it means in the Hebrew language, a thing of nakedness or a thing of uncleanness. And it's very hard for us today to ascertain exactly what Moses meant by thing of nakedness. The only other place it's used is also in the book of Deuteronomy, and it refers to, well, uh, poop in the camp. Yes. So it's a thing of nakedness, a thing of uncleanness. And the conservatives who followed a, a rabbi named Shammai said that something indecent had to be some sexual sin, uh, a marital infidelity, or adultery, or something like that. Whereas the liberals who followed a rabbi named Hillel said that something indecent could be just about anything that the husband didn't like. If the wife burned the bacon that morning, he could write her a certificate of divorce and get rid of her. If she got uh, overweight, he could divorce her. So that's the liberal view, the Hillel view. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, so Jesus, is Hillel correct? Can a man divorce his wife for burning the bacon for any and every reason? And Jesus, instead of choosing sides between right and left, instead of that, he takes the Pharisees back in the Bible to Genesis 1 and 2. He says in verse 4, haven't you read... That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, says Jesus, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What's Jesus saying? Well, what Jesus is saying is that marriage is a one flesh, permanent union of one man and of one woman. It is meant to be an indissoluble, lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, separable only by death. That's God's design for marriage. Now notice in this text some very important words. For example, verse 6. Marriage is called a joining. might want to underline that word. It's a joining of two people by God. Verse 5. Marriage is called a leaving and a cleaving in some translations. The husband and wife, in other words, leave their parents. They leave their home and in the presence of God and in the presence of witnesses, they make promises to each other and they enter into a brand new relationship that wasn't there before. A relationship that binds or cleaves them together, that seals them together like glue so that Where they were two separate individuals before, they are now one. One. Now, I know that's very mystical. It's hard for us to wrap our hands around that. It's a little bit like the Trinity. You know, we believe that God is one. He is one being, one God, but in three persons. You have three separate persons in the Godhead, and yet. They are one. And it's sort of like that in marriage. Two becoming one. Or think of Velcro. Do you know that they make a kind of Velcro used in some industrialized, industrial settings, commercial settings, that once those two things are pressed together, they are almost impossible to pull apart? That's like marriage. That's like that marriage covenant in the same way God cements, you might say, the husband and the wife together in such a way that without losing their individual unique personalities, they yet from the moment of the wedding on are one flesh, one person. Romans 7 verse 2 says says that a married woman is bound to her husband. That's the same idea, a binding, a cleaving. A one flesh unity. That means they are intimate in every, every, every way. They share everything. They talk about everything. They have no secrets. They make decisions together. They suffer together. They succeed together. They fail together. They are naked and unashamed together. Not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. They are, in other words, each other's closest companion they are each other's best friend do you know that that is why god instituted marriage in the first place to meet our intense human need for companionship that doesn't mean that every single person is called into marriage but most people find their best companion in the context of marriage so divorce therefore is contrary to god's ideal It separates people who are supposed to stay together for life. Divorce, you might say, is an amputation. An amputation of one person from another. A severing of one person from another. It's a painful ripping apart of a fabric that God has designed to stay together. Some of you know that about a year and a half ago I had an ACDF. An anterior cervical discectomy and fusion. I had a herniated disc between C6 and C7 C7, uh, back here in my neck. And they go through the throat. Sorry to gross you out. They go through the throat, remove the herniated disc, insert a piece of cadaver bone in there that begins to fuse those vertebrae together. And then I've got a metal plate in here that holds the two vertebrae together. Can you imagine somebody taking that metal plate and ripping it out of my throat. Oh, unthinkable. What a painful, awful, awful thing that would be. That is like divorce, though. A ripping apart of that which God has fused together. Now, you might think because of Jesus' strong language on that whole subject that that's the end of the discussion. Once you're married, there's no way out. Divorce is out of the question, Right? Wrong, wrong, because Jesus in this passage, Matthew 19, goes on to say that there are times when divorce is permitted. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes is show you that Jesus does not command divorce, but neither does he condemn it. He does not commend divorce, but rather he is conceding it. There's a big difference there. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. He says in verse 7, these are the Pharisees speaking, Why then did Moses command that a man should give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you. It's the key difference there. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that... Verse 9, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now notice that the Pharisees got it wrong. They say that Moses commanded divorce and he did no such thing The passage that we looked at earlier from Deuteronomy 24 was case law. It simply assumed that divorce might happen and said, here's what to do in case it does. Moses was not instituting divorce. He was regulating divorce. He was saying, if a man writes a bill of divorcement, here's what you do. And Jesus corrects those Pharisees by saying that Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. Some of you might be surprised to know that there are examples in the Bible of divorce where God is clearly sanctioning the divorce. For example, in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, you have a situation where God commanded the Israelites to divorce their foreign wives. In Matthew chapter 1, before the birth of Jesus, you might remember that that Joseph is called a just man. And yet he was considering divorcing his wife Mary, his fiancée Mary, quietly. And in the Old Testament, we read that God actually divorced his wife, Israel, for her repeated idolatry. Hosea chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 3, and other places. Imagine then that we're talking about a piece of fine china. A big fine china dish that costs very, very much money. It's not meant to be broken. It's meant to be treasured. It's meant to be guarded and kept and loved and honored, right? But to say that that china dish should be unbroken does not mean that it can't be broken or that it must never be broken. And in the same way, divorce is something that God permits marriage, though something that should be kept together, though something that should be guarded and loved and honored and treasured and the unity preserved, there are situations in which that covenant bond can indeed be broken. Mike, you might say, what do you mean by that? When might the covenant bond be broken? Here's the answer. Other than the death of a spouse, and I wouldn't recommend anybody here trying that one, In fact, I'm not recommending you try any of these. But other than the death of a spouse, the marriage covenant can be broken in two ways. Let's talk about that. First way, marital unfaithfulness. That's the phrase used there in verse 9 where Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this verse has been debated for centuries. And what I want to try to do is make it as simple as possible and boil it down to the basic truths. There are two Greek words there in verse 9 that you need to understand. That phrase, marital unfaithfulness, is the Greek word porneia. Yes, that's the word from which we get the word pornography. It's the most general word in the Greek vocabulary for sexual sin. It's used for a host of different sexual aberrations in the Bible prostitution, adultery, fornication, incest, homosexuality, polygamy, bestiality, any expression, in other words, any expression of sexuality outside the marriage or relationship of a a man and a woman. It's the Greek word porneia. That word or its Hebrew equivalent is also used in the Bible in a figurative sense from time to time. The prophets, for example, the prophets of Israel spoke about Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness to the Lord using the language of pornea. And that is why the NIV, that from which we are reading right now, chooses to use the words marital unfaithfulness to translate porneia. They're allowing that figurative use to sometimes creep in. The ESV, which some of you use, is a little more literal. It goes with the translation sexual immorality instead of marital unfaithfulness. That's the way they translate the word porneia. So let's just say that porneia is any kind of immoral activity, especially sexual, that breaks the covenantal one-flesh union between husband and wife. That's porneia. The other Greek, I said that there are two. The other Greek word that's in verse 9 is moikeia. It's at the end of verse 9, and it's more of a narrow word. It means adultery, and that is intimacy between a married person and somebody other than his or her spouse. So Jesus is saying in this passage that when a husband or wife engages in certain kinds of activity, activity that violates or ruptures that one flesh relationship we've talked about, the offended spouse may file for divorce. That would not be a sinful divorce, even though sin caused the divorce. Do you see that? The divorce itself would be legitimate, even though sin is what led to the divorce. Now, this husband or this wife doesn't have to get a divorce, mind you. Divorce is not commanded, like I said earlier, it is permitted. And if divorce happens because of the sexual sin of one of these partners, the innocent party may, says Jesus, remarry. Because the marriage has been terminated, you see. That marriage is over. If the exception clause of verse 9 has been met, the offended party may remarry. Now, all sorts of questions probably pop up at this point in the discussion. For example... You may be asking, can a person divorce a spouse who has an addiction, such as an addiction to pornography or to gambling or something like that? Or or what if your spouse gets into an emotional affair with another person? If, in fact, pornea is a general word that applies to all sorts of unfaithful activities, might it apply to things like that? Here's my answer. Maybe. And maybe not. Let's admit, friends, that the human heart is deceitful above all things. We are desperately wicked, and sin is going to pull us in the direction of trying to find a reason that justifies our desire to get a divorce. So we must not do that. We must not expand the list of sins that fit under this figurative or broad use of pornea. But at the same time, our friends in the PCA a number of years ago Uh, did a lot of study on this subject and came up with a position paper in which they say this. If a person becomes so obsessed with such activities, the ones we're talking about right now, the addictions, the... uh, the habits, the, 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 uh, the continual engagement in things that are immoral. If a person becomes so obsessed with those activities that they become a substitute for, for uh, fulfilling the conjugal rights of the spouse, then they could be understood to break the one flesh union. Judgment will have to rest with the session, that's the name we give to our elders, uh, in their application of biblical principles. The guiding principle should be whether the sin does indeed break... The one-flesh relationship. All right, let's pause right there and say that I said that the marriage covenant can be broken in two ways. One way is porneia, Matthew nineteen nine. It's also in Matthew five thirty two. The other way is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So in your Bible, if you would turn, let's leave Matthew 19 and go to 1 Corinthians 7. Just flip over to the right in your Bible. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Look with me at verses 1 through 9 for a moment. In those verses of chapter 7, Paul echoes what Genesis 1 and 2 say about the gift of marriage and the intimacy of the one flesh union. And then in verses 10 through 16, the apostle speaks to two different groups of people. In verses 10 and 11, Paul is addressing husbands and wives who are both Christians. Let me read those two verses. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 says, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He's saying that here we have a, a direct teaching of Jesus when he was here on the earth. A wife must not separate from her husband. That word separate is just a synonym for divorce. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Notice that Paul doesn't repeat there the exception clause that Jesus did in Matthew 19.9. He doesn't have to. It is assumed. But, he says, he does add something new. He adds that if divorce occurs for some reason other than porneia, the husband and wife must remain single. That's the penalty for a sinful divorce. If you don't have porneia and yet you go ahead and get divorced, then you must remain unmarried, says Paul. Because remaining single makes it possible for you and your mate to reconcile and get back together. And that would obviously be the great ideal. Now let's move on to verses 12 through 16. In those verses, Paul is now going to address a mixed marriage. In other words, one spouse is a Christian and the other is not a Christian. Verse 12 says, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul is saying, hey, here's just uh, sort of good advice that I have for you. No, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. But this is something that he is saying, and we don't have a direct quotation from Jesus. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What's Paul saying? He is saying that if you're married to a non-Christian... You must not seek a divorce from that person simply because he or she doesn't share your faith. You must not do that. In fact, you ought to be thankful that God can use you, as the passage says, to bring covenantal grace into that person's life. And might it lead to salvation one day? All right, but look at verse 15. But let's say this, says Paul. If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or a woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Paul is teaching us there that if your non-Christian spouse leaves you, then you're not bound to stay in that marriage. You may divorce in that case. That's a legitimate divorce. And by implication, he says, you're also free to remarry because the marriage bond has been broken and the marriage itself no longer exists. So the desertion of a believing spouse by an unbeliever is a second circumstance that makes divorce permissible. The divorce would not be sinful, even though sin caused it. And again, I want to say this, just because divorce is permitted doesn't mean that it is the right thing to do or or even the only thing to do in that situation because God can heal the worst of relationships. Sometimes it's your forgiving attitude and your selfless spirit and your commitment to the good of that other person that will actually bring him or her to repentance. Now, just as with the whole pornea question, a lot of other questions get raised at this point about desertion, and I want to deal with that. Here's the question some of you might be asking. Might desertion, quote-unquote, encompass more than somebody just physically leaving the house? And the answer of most evangelical thinkers about that is yes. Again, turning to our PCA brothers who studied this subject and put together a paper, they said that desertion can occur as well by the imposition of intolerable conditions as by departure itself. Now, obviously... Let me caution us here. Obviously, I want you to hear this. Not just anything that you happen to dislike in that spouse of yours should be included. I love how the PCA paper put it. They say that the list of sins tantamount to desertion cannot be very long. Sometimes God calls us to stay in painful and difficult relationships. You remember what the Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said that uh, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, what did he do? He didn't insult back. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And sometimes that's what your calling is, as a husband or a wife in an unhappy marriage. But things like physical abuse... Treachery, alcohol or drug abuse, cruelty, criminal activity, absenteeism, or any kind of habitual behavior or an attitude that endangers the welfare of you or your children are certainly a kind of desertion. And even if that spouse claims to be a Christian and yet engages habitually in these kinds of activities... At some point, he or she is acting like a non-Christian and ought to be treated as such. The key here, guys, the key here is for the elders of the church to be involved in these cases. So I'm going to say this to you. If you today, to whom I'm speaking, are involved in a marital situation that is intolerable, tell me, tell Matt, tell Seth, tell one of the elders... Because the elders of the church are here to shepherd you through those situations and to help you and us communally make good decisions about things like that. The Bible, you see, doesn't speak to every single possibility. It's not going to talk about an addiction to pornography. It's not going to be specific about some of those things. We have to take principles from the Bible, saturate them with prayer, and seek the Lord's guidance to come up with the best decision we can. So, All right, so what have we learned today, guys? We've learned that divorce, let me show you kind of a summary here. We've learned that God did not institute divorce. Rather, He permits it. He tolerates it. He regulates it. We've said that divorce always stems from sin, but divorce itself is not necessarily sinful. Divorce terminates the covenant of marriage. In cases where one partner repudiates the marriage covenant by sexual immorality, pornea, or desertion, divorce is lawful. And where divorce is permitted, remarriage by the innocent party is also permitted. Now, I'm sure that many of you might have further questions about these things. So I want to just say, let's talk. You know, I've got 30 to 40 minutes and it's hard to cover all of these issues in one sermon. But if you've got questions, if you want to explore some of these things, if you yourself are being affected by these questions right now, let's talk. We're a community that cares about this issue. We care about you and we want to nurture the marriages in our church. So let me say a few words of final application. A couple of things. First, here's some takeaways. You remember earlier this morning I said that there's not one divorce, I mean uh, one marriage in this room that is divorce proof? You've got to know that. You've got to humbly walk your marriage path, understanding the vulnerability that you are in to any and all kinds of sins. But if you want to make your marriage as divorce-proof as possible, the first thing I'm going to say is you you need to make sure that you're a follower of Jesus. You need to make sure that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and that you're committed to and involved in a strong, healthy, Bible-believing church. You've probably heard some of the statistics that say that divorce is just as common in the church as in the world. Well, that needs to be qualified because better studies have said that when we're talking about people who are committed to Jesus and who take their faith serious and who are involved and committed to a local church, the divorce rate goes way down. There's a reason for that. Because the Holy Spirit can enable you through faith in Christ and the gospel and through your involvement with your brothers and sisters to overcome these problems. Second thing I want to say is if you are married... If you one day will be married, take heed to these words. That spouse of yours needs to be under Christ your next priority. And if you would make your marriage as divorce-proof as possible, you must be willing to invest in the health of your marriage. Guys, you've got to be getting date nights. If you're married, you husbands and wives, you've got to be getting away with each other. You've got to be spending time with each other. You need boundaries around your, your relationship. And you need to take advantage of every resource, every conference, every book you can get your hands on to learn about being a better husband or a better wife. We've got one coming up in late September. It's called Breakaway. You guys who are married, come to Breakaway. It's a, it's a wonderful time. We're going to be at Cocoa Beach again, September 28th through 30th. The deadline is looming, August 15th. You've got to sign up by then if you want the discounted price. I invite you, I encourage you, I urge you, married couples. Come here, Dr. Scott Copeland. He's going to be our speaker. He's wonderful, and you'll learn a lot. The third thing I want to say is always, always give God a chance to do a miracle. Always give God a chance to do a miracle. I've seen marriages that appeared hopeless turn around by the grace of God. Divorce, you know, should be your last resort. So before you give up, do everything you can. Identify those things that brought you to the place that you are at in your marriage. Repent deeply of the sins that you yourself has committed. Pray together and ask God to give you a spirit of forgiveness and healing grace. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Get your friends to pray and fast for you. Go to a professional counselor. Come see Michael and Rachel Blackston here at Redeemer Counseling in our church. Go to a marriage intensive. Have you ever heard of retrovi? Retrovi is is a marriage weekend thing for people who say there's no hope for us. I'll give you the... The, the link you can go to retrovi guess what it's free it's here in orlando it's here in central Florida. go to retrovi and if and oh, oh one more thing get the elders involved if you like I said earlier, if you're troubled about where you're at in your marriage, come talk to one of the pastors and get the the elders of the church involved. If divorce becomes necessary and some of you are divorced, if divorce is something that is your experience then here's what you need to do. You need to rest in the love of Christ. You need to rest in the love of Christ and move forward. Begin to rebuild your life in Him. Realize that we live in a fallen world where sometimes things don't get better. Groan for heaven. groan for the new earth where things will be better. You remember earlier today I said that God divorced Israel? See, God even got a divorce but hear what he says in hosea chapter 2 therefore he says i'm now going to allure her i will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her in that day declares the lord you will never you will no longer call me my husband you will call me my husband you will no longer call me my master I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will show you my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. See, it's because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, that you and I can know that divorce is not the final word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for teaching us about divorce and marriage and remarriage. Thank you for the institution of marriage. Thank you, Father, that you created marriage for the happiness and the welfare of mankind. Lord, we pray for one another here. We admit that none of us is immune None of us has a self-righteous leg to stand on here. Lord, all of us are sinners. All of us are vulnerable to fall. And there are people in our church who are divorced and who are still feeling the pain of that. There are children of divorce in our church. People who have grown up without a father or mother or in a broken home. Lord, would you help UPC be a place where marriages are strengthened, where divorced people get restored, and where the children of divorce... Find a welcome home. Lord Jesus, thank you that you can put the pieces of our puzzles back together. Thank you that you can take a a wounded marriage and make it healed again. Thank you that you can take divorced people and make them well and help them find in you grace greater than all of our struggles, all of our sins, all of our challenges. Lord, you be our husband today. You be the husband of this bride, the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407 384 Three three zero zero.